0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the New Deal podcast. My name is Jerry Nutini. As always, for more from the New Deal, head on over to thenewdeal.com for the podcast, blog, and video. Please follow on Facebook and Twitter. And if you like the show, please rate and review wherever you listen. I would really appreciate it. Sorry for the delay on getting this episode out. I was trying to get it out last week, and then we had a hurricane warning come through and trying to do all the hurricane prep. And more or less got nothing, which seems to be the standard these days. You know, big hype up for a storm, then get nothing, Uh, but that's why there is a delay on this episode, and I apologize for that. Today's episode will focus almost exclusively on Afghanistan, but before I get to that, I'd like to explain why this episode is a little different. Typically I do a short intro, kind of like what I just did, then I play the theme song, and then I jump into the episode. Today, I'm just gonna run through a few quick bullet point headlines before playing a longer clip that will set us up for the rest of the episode. So here are those headlines. The US recently hit 1 million vaccinations in a day for the first time since early July. The Supreme Court refused to uphold the Texas mask mandate. So we're seeing masks in Texas, which is great. COVID booster shots will be available to Americans as early as next month And they're suggesting that Americans get a booster eight months after their second shot, but that not everyone will need a booster. So I'm sure that we're going to see more guidance on that up the road. The FDA has formally fully approved the Pfizer COVID vaccine. It now has the same approval as any other vaccine. So anyone who is waiting for, you know, the safety to come out for the FDA to report on that, for this to come out of emergency use, it is now in full use, fully approved. Pfizer, COVID vaccine. So that's excellent news. Now, right here is the point where I'd usually jump into the podcast theme song. But today's episode is a little different. The events in Afghanistan this week have brought to the surface the complexities of the war there, the effect that war has had on so many lives, and it's forced us into examining what happened there over all these years, 20 years. So for the next five minutes... I pieced together audio that I hope conveys not only how much of our lives this war has affected, but also the length of time, the thousands of people involved in the decision making, and how we've come to be where we are. These clips will serve as the foundation for the rest of the episode, so I encourage you to listen. So here we go. I'll see you on the other side.
1: Number
2: two. Yeah. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there. The south end of the island of Manhattan. That is, once again, a picture of one of the towers of the World Trade Center. We could see these pictures. It's obviously uh, something devastating has happened. And again, unconfirmed report that a plane has crashed into one of the towers there. We are efforting more information on this subject as it becomes available to you. Did
0: Jennifer? you just see
2: this happen, Jennifer?
0: Matt, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've never seen any, it looks
1: like a movie. I saw a large plane, like a jet. Going immediately headed directly into the World Trade Center it, it, it just flew into it into the, into the other tower coming from south to north. I watched the plane fly into the World Trade Center. It was a jet, it was a very large plane, it was going fast, it went past the Rich carlton Hotel that's being built in Battery
2: Park,
3: it went, flew right past it, almost hit it, and then went in.
2: The first thing I want to tell you is that uh, we're all, everyone I'm sure, on their minds is God rest the souls, of those who've lost their lives this morning in New York, in Washington, uh, near Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania. um, It is just a story for which there are no words to describe.
1: The magnitude of this will go on for some time. This is not just a national tragedy. But this is a national security event of an untold magnitude that this country is going to have to deal with. The President's coming back, and we are at war and in effect here. This country has suffered a devastating attack that will cost us in the sense of uh, in loss of life. It will also cost us in terms of our uh, psychological security that we have in this country. We're going to have to revisit a lot of our freedoms as a result of this kind of an attack. And then, of course, there's the whole question of retaliation. This is an Who is upsetting. responsible and what do we do? Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people
2: and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children.
3: We just signed an agreement that puts us in a position to. Get it done. Bring us down to in the vicinity of 8,000 troops. Uh, I want to also thank and congratulate Secretary of State Pompeo and Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. And I'll be meeting personally with Taliban leaders in the not too distant future. And we'll be very much hoping that they will be doing what they say they're going to be doing. They will be killing terrorists. They will be killing some very bad people. They will keep that fight going. We've had tremendous success in Afghanistan and the killing of terrorists, but it's time, after all these years, to go want
1: to, Afghanistan in, almost to bring our people years
3: ago, back home. With clear goals. We want to bring our people back home.
1: Get those who attacked us on September 11th, 2001, and Make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on American homeland.
0: On September 11th, 2001, two planes hit the towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. The attack was carried out by a terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda, which was led by Osama bin Laden. On September 18th, 2001, Congress passed a joint resolution. The Authorization for Use of Military Force against those responsible for the September 11th attack. Our mission entering Afghanistan was to dismantle Al-Qaeda and to kill Osama bin Laden. Our goal was also to ensure that Afghanistan was not a safe haven for any terror groups. It is imperative that we remember what our initial goals were, because they are the framework through which we should be assessing our time in Afghanistan. Wars have missions, wars have goals. And once specific goals are achieved, the war ends. That's how war works. By December of 2001, just over two months after the U.S. entered Afghanistan, the Taliban government had been dismantled, and the U.S. and its allies appointed Hamid Karzai, the president of the transitional government. He would be formally elected president to Afghanistan in 2004, and he would serve as president until 2014. On May 2nd, 2011, Osama bin Laden was killed. He was the principal financier of Al-Qaeda. In the years prior to bin Laden's death, U.S. forces had fended off attacks of the Taliban and other terror groups in the region. From 2001 to 2021, 20 years, all provincial centers in Afghanistan were under control of the new Afghan government for 20 years. So, with bin Laden's death on May 2nd, 2011, our mission in Afghanistan and the mission of the war was, for all intents and purposes, accomplished. The next 10 years, or the nation building phase, was never part of our initial effort or goals in the country. After a decade of nation building, in February 2020, the Trump administration signed a deal with the Taliban to withdraw all U.S. troops. From Afghanistan by May 1st, 2021. In exchange, the Taliban would cut ties with other terror organizations. They would cease attacks on U.S. and coalition forces and a few other details that we'll get into later. If it seems strange to you, after hearing what the U.S. achievements were a second ago, that we signed a deal with the Taliban, that's because it is strange. It's far stranger than any of us thought. But I'll get to that in a little bit. Last week, Joe Biden addressed the nation. After the capital of Afghanistan, the city of Kabul, fell into Taliban control. Something that was unimaginable just months or even weeks ago. And as the media tends to do, there was an immediate attempt to place blame. In the first days, it felt like the majority of that energy was directed at President Biden. But in the days since, it seems like the nation's collective memory has begun to return. And part of what I want to examine here is the past events that led us to the events of this week. Not necessarily to assign blame though I do believe that there is blame to be assigned, but to demonstrate that these issues that are so easily politicized one second cannot be viewed without context. My favorite history teacher taught me that history is not just events. You have to connect the dots between them. Events don't just happen. There is cause and effect, and there is foreshadowing, and history is a collective experience. Afghanistan is no different. So let's begin At the end, as you heard, a deal was signed by President Donald Trump, which I will address later, that put in motion the plan to remove all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by May 2021. Here is President Biden in last week's press conference explaining how he approached the plan that was passed down to his administration from the Trump administration.
1: When I came into office, I inherited a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Under his agreement, U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021, just a little over three months after I took office. U.S. forces had already drawn down during the Trump administration from roughly 15,500 American forces to 2,500 troops in country. And the Taliban was at its strongest militarily since 2001. The choice I had to make as your president was either to follow through on that agreement or be prepared to go back to fighting the Taliban in the middle of the spring fighting season. There would have been no ceasefire after May 1. There was no agreement protecting our forces after May 1. There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May 1. There was only a cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict.
0: Most of what President Biden said there, I'm going to get to later on in the episode where the things he talked about kind of fit in a little bit more neatly, but... Just some things to take away. He said, you know, what choice did he have? He could either follow through with the plan or prepare to go back and fight the Taliban. And also that there was no formal agreement after May 1st and therefore our troops and coalition forces were not protected in Afghanistan after that date. Donald Trump reduced troops in Afghanistan to about 2,500 before leaving office. Uh, And he did this just five days prior to leaving office. Joe Biden decided to honor Trump's arrangement, but he pushed back the withdrawal date from May 1st, 2021 to September 11, 2021. And actually in recent weeks, he then moved that date up a bit to August 31st. On August 6th, the Taliban captured their first provincial city. No city had fallen from the Afghan's central government's control in 20 years. It only took 11 days for the Taliban to capture the remaining 33 cities, including the capital of Kabul. Last weekend... Afghan President Ashraf Ghani fled the country, even as members of his own government were working on creating a peaceful transition deal between their government and the Taliban. Once Ghani fled, those talks ceased, and the Taliban pushed into the city. This is what led to the chaos at the Kabul airport that we're seeing now, with thousands of American citizens, citizens of allied nations, and Afghan citizens closely aligned with the US rushing to try to escape the country for fear of Taliban violence. President Biden has been criticized for the chaotic evacuation and what seems to be a lack of planning in getting Americans and allies out of the country before it fell. Here, from the same press conference the other clip is from last week, is Joe Biden on making the decision to withdraw the troops.
1: I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risk. We planned for every contingency. But I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves.
0: I'm playing these clips up front because they're relevant to the current time frame and the events we're seeing now. But as we get through the episode, I just want to make sure that everyone remembers a couple of things. One, Biden admits the truth is that this didn't fold more quickly than anticipated, and I'm going to address why it happened more quickly than anticipated later on. Leaders gave up and fled, the military collapsed. He he runs through all of these different scenarios and and variables that sped this process along. So I just want to make sure that everyone remembers that he said this, so that later when it comes up again, you're like, oh yeah, that's what he said, and you know that I'm not just making things up. What Biden was clear about here is that he has been committed to removing troops since his election campaign, and he considers this a campaign promise. At one point in his speech, he said, what we are seeing now could have happened five years ago or 15 years in the future, and the outcome would have very likely been the same. Presidents since Obama have felt the need to leave Afghanistan, and that is in part because after the death of bin Laden, our mission there has been kind of amorphous and unclear, and there has already been a heavy cost. What are those costs? We have lost 2,300 American lives in Afghanistan. We've had over 20,000 Americans wounded. We've spent over $2 trillion on the war, and for perspective, Biden said that the war which has cost from one to two trillion amounts to spending $150 to $300 million per day on that war. It's an astronomical amount of money to spend daily overseas in a war that we really don't have a goal for anymore. Billions more were spent to support the Afghan government in the form of not only money, but military resources, training. In over 20 years, we have trained their military provision them weaponry given the military technology and we're going to explore what we got for that later on later on i'm also going to take a look at all the events leading us to where we are today and try to explore why things unraveled so quickly but first this is the status of our current operation to evacuate americans and other allies some of the stats that i'm about to read through um are updated very quickly So some of them might be out of date, and if they are, I apologize, just based on updates you might hear between even while I'm recording this and when you listen. So first, last week the Secretary of Defense said we have three priorities. Number one is the safety of the people. Number two is the airport security at the Kabul airport. And number three is the pace or speed in which we can get people out of there. The Army has... Estimated that it can evacuate between five and 9,000 people per day, although I don't think we've seen 9,000 in a day yet. We currently have 5,800 U.S. soldiers currently there in Kabul right now. We have F-18s and other air support over the city. Uh, reports say the jet noise is near constant. Since August 14th, we've evacuated about 7,000 total people and 12,000 since the end of July. Currently, we have a deadline there of August 31st to complete these evacuations, although we may stay beyond that. And it looks like the White House is in discussions to potentially extend that deadline out to make sure that we can get more people, although we don't know what the Taliban response would be. Along those lines, there are increased reports that the Taliban are seeking out former members of the government and that reprisal is feared there that the Taliban may actually start hurting, killing, capturing people who stood against them. There doesn't seem to be a clear chain of command in place for the Taliban. So laws are not being consistently applied. And in some areas, women have been able to return to work. They can be uncovered and unescorted. While in other areas, it seems like the policy has reverted back to preoccupation with full cover for women required and an escort required. And so it's it, it's chaotic. Some critics have wondered why the Biden administration didn't anticipate the chaos and didn't anticipate all the people needing to get out. Here is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, at a press conference last week.
2: Let me make one comment on the intelligence because I'm seeing all over the news that there are warnings of a rapid collapse. I have previously said from this podium and in sworn testimony before Congress that the intelligence clearly indicated multiple scenarios were possible. One of those was an outright Taliban takeover following a rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces and the government. Another was a civil war, and a third was a negotiated settlement. However, the time frame of a rapid collapse, that was widely estimated and ranged from weeks to months and even years following our departure. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw it indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days.
0: So Milley made clear, they had planned for different scenarios. They had planned for different ways in which the government could collapse and they weren't saying the government wouldn't collapse. But what he is saying is that there was no indication that the government would collapse in only 11 days. And I think we know why the government collapsed in 11 days and I'll get into that a little bit later. But there's also a reason that they could not have foreseen why it fell in 11 days it makes sense so i just thought it was interesting to hear those scenarios and he was very very sure that there was no indication at all that the afghan government and army would collapse in 11 days other critics have wondered why we haven't escalated our presence and pushed out of the airports to try to get other u.s citizens and afghans from other parts of the country here is secretary of defense austin explaining the situation.
2: But that doesn't answer the question. I mean, you're still saying you're focused on the airfield. They, these people can't get into the airfield. Well, we're going to do everything we can to uh, continue to try to uh, deconflict conflict uh, and, and create uh, uh, passageways for them to get to the airfield. I don't not- have the capability to go out and, and extend operations currently into, uh, into uh, Kabul. And and where do you take that? I mean, how far can you extend into Kabul, you know, and, uh, and, and how long does it take to flow those forces in to be able to do that?
0: So he's explaining, you know, they're trying to create passageways for people to get into the airfield, but they don't have the capability to extend operations into the city because we're supposed to be withdrawing. And it seems like our deal with the Taliban is that, okay, people can get to the airport, you can fly them out. Anything moving beyond that could be seen as us being hostile toward the Taliban and what would their response to that be and it doesn't seem like the US wants to try to escalate anything so long as Americans are not being killed people are being allowed to the airport people are being allowed through with the correct paperwork and it seems like they've got it kind of worked out although i understand the criticism and i have wondered you know If needed, would we send in 10,000 troops to secure the airfield in like a one mile perimeter and make sure that people can get in? But how far out do you push? At some point, people are going to run into, you know, some type of Taliban barricade or a hostile force. So no matter how far you push out, they will always be able to set up more than likely some type of barrier to stop people from getting in. So, well, seems to make sense just to send more people in. There are also questions of how much we want to escalate whether we should escalate, and even if we do push out, what does that accomplish? There is no question that this situation is chaotic, and the number of unknowns and the volatility of the situation make the Kabul airport seem like a tinderbox. I feel that given the situation, Biden and the administration are doing all they can do while ensuring the safety of the troops on the ground there. Um, I, like all other Americans, I hope we can get everyone out who needs to get out, and with no casualties. What I want to do now is take a look at this entire conflict. As I said before, in a war that's lasted 20 years, over four presidencies, blame cannot and should not be easily assigned. But decisions made by our leaders have led us where we are now. And I think it's important to revisit each phase of the conflict and lay responsibility where it needs to be laid. We heard the clips from September 11th. It was a day that changed the lives of all Americans. Not only because we went to war shortly after, but because it affected our safety, our feeling of security. And for better or for worse, it forced new lifestyle restrictions on us that are still here today and for all intents and purposes seem to be permanent. So we declared war, but not on a nation. We declared war in, on an idea um, and on those who backed it. We declared war on Al Qaeda, a terrorist organization, which is, you know, they're an entity without a country. The Taliban were running Afghanistan at the time, but we were not at war with Afghanistan. Remember earlier, we listed out the goals of the war, dismantle Al Qaeda, kill bin Laden, and stop Afghanistan from being a nation that supported terror groups. So this was going on while George W. Bush was in office. And we can probably say that we feel better about the decision to go to war in Afghanistan than to go to war in Iraq. But was that the right thing to do? The way we approached is that the Bush administration basically put out to the Taliban that unless you stop terror groups in your country, unless you, you know, get them out of there, stop promoting them, stop giving them, you know, safe harbor, we are going to come after you. And the Taliban did not do that. They did not get rid of other terror organizations, and so we went in to basically make Afghanistan a country that was not going to harbor terror groups, and the Afghan government at the time, the Taliban, we're not willing to do that. And that's how we ended up in a conflict with the Taliban. We weren't directly at war with the Taliban. They just weren't willing to honor our request to stop harboring other terror groups and giving them safe haven. And so we went after the Taliban to make Afghanistan a safe country. And that is how we, you know, quote unquote, defended U.S. interests. Was it the right thing to do? I don't know. It's, it's tough looking back 20 years later. We were attacked. Thousands of Americans were killed. We knew who was responsible for that killing. We said we wanted to dismantle Al Qaeda, kill Osama bin Laden. And we thought they were operating in Afghanistan. So we didn't want Afghanistan to be a place where they could operate. And it seems like, you know, 10 years later they were in Pakistan. So who knows? But in the beginning in 2001, our mission was much clearer than it was from 2011 and beyond. The Taliban were out of Afghanistan within two months of our arrival. So we went into Afghanistan and they had been the government there for five years and they were gone within two months. In December of 2001, a transitional government was set up with Hamid Karzai acting as president. Remember, he would be elected formally as president three years later. That government would hold control of all 34 provincial capitals from December 2001 until August 6th of this year, just a few weeks ago. An anti-terror government had essentially been established in 2011 we killed osama bin laden effectively cutting funding from al-qaeda and disrupting their operations this was a decade ago bin laden was dead afghanistan was not a terror state and al-qaeda had been immensely reduced one could argue that with the death of osama bin laden the conflict should have ended there the war should have ended there we achieved our goals Hey, we set out 10 years ago to do A, B, C. We've achieved A, B, and C. Let's bring our guys home. But we know it didn't happen that way. We stayed there. We stayed there and we trained Afghan forces. I think we stayed there because we thought, well, it's best for U.S. interest if we stay here and continue to promote and build this Afghan force that can basically serve U.S. interests by making sure Afghanistan does not fall back into the hands of organizations that will become a safe haven for terror organizations. So we spent 10 years doing that. But many Americans thought that we should have been out of Afghanistan and Iraq years ago. As President Biden said, we never went there to nation build. Over that decade, terrorist activity ebbed and flowed. We sent more troops there under Obama in the surge. We also began drawing down under Obama in the second term. Arguments can be made for each individual phase what we should have done. But I think the real question is, should we have ever stayed there beyond 2011? And I don't think we should have. I do not think we should have been there after Osama bin Laden was killed. Because no matter which way you look at it, we are putting American lives on the line. And at the time, it did not seem like the threat of an attack on U.S. soil was anywhere near as likely as it had been in 2001, not only because of what we'd done in the Middle East, but also because of the safety and security measures we had taken here at home to prevent similar situations from happening. And I think the issue with these wars, you know, since World War II, is we lack a clear set of goals and outcomes. In World War II, it was Hitler's a bad guy. Hitler's expanding Germany's borders across Europe, killing, you know, countless millions while he does it. Not okay. Humanitarian crisis. We need to get this guy out of here. So we did. We got rid of Hitler. We stopped the Nazis. We restored the borders. We did what we needed to do there. We went to war with Japan as well because they attacked us. We attacked them in a in a big and maybe overzealous way that we regret now. But either way, the conflict ended. The war ended. The goal was achieved. We achieved the outcome we wanted. We brought everybody home. Didn't happen with Vietnam? Has it happened with Iraq and Afghanistan? Because there were no clear goals. We achieved the goals and then we stayed. Why did we stay? I don't know. Military industrial complex. Who knows why we stayed? It doesn't make sense. So I think we should have been out in 2011, 2012. You know, give the Afghan government some time. Hey guys, we're going to be taking off. Like what do you need from us? Okay. We'll see you. You know, in a year, we're going to be, you know, we're going to get out of here. Don't announce it to the world you know real quiet so that you know people don't start you know just moving in you know strategy where what we are seeing today with the airport in kabul and the evacuation and in this chaotic situation where that all really began was in february 2020 with a deal that the u.s struck with the taliban that i don't think is getting anywhere near enough attention so i'd like to take a really close look at that deal In February 2020, Donald Trump signed an agreement with the Taliban. I remember thinking at the time, what does he mean he signed an agreement with terrorists? Uh, I was shocked. It didn't seem like it could be real, but it was. And it was portrayed as this prelude to peace. Here are the terms of the deal. The U.S. agreed to withdraw all U.S. allied and coalition forces in 14 months with a deadline of May 1st, 2021. The U.S. would draw down immediately from 15,000 troops to about 8,000 and reduce our presence in the country to five bases. The U.S. also agreed we would release 5,000 Taliban fighters. In return, the Taliban would work to prevent other terror groups from operating in Afghanistan. They would release 1,000 prisoners. And they would stop attacking U.S. and coalition forces. They also agreed to enter peace talks with the Afghan government. There were no provisions in the deal that demanded the Taliban cut ties with al-Qaeda, nor were there provisions that the Taliban stop attacking Afghan government forces. Obviously, there are some surprising provisions in this agreement, but before we pick those apart, there's one other major event that occurred around the formation of these peace talks, and not enough has been in the major headlines as to how this deal came to fruition. So let's back up a decade. In 2010, the Obama administration captured a Taliban leader by the name of Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar. He was a founder of the Taliban. Which led a repressive regime that ruled afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 and provided sanctuary to al-qaeda leader osama bin laden despite his role in the taliban baradar was also considered to be the most likely person to potentially be willing to negotiate terms for peace the obama administration however was more fearful of his military expertise than it was hopeful about his supposedly moderate leanings so the cia tracked him down to karachi in 2010 And he was arrested. And from there, he was imprisoned in Pakistan. So, from 2010 and on, he was in Pakistan in prison because the US captured him. Quote The capture of Baradar was predominantly instigated because of his role in the war rather than because of the likelihood that he was going to suddenly make peace, a former official said. The fact is, the Pakistanis held on to him all those years in large part because the United States asked them to. The Trump administration, however, did not seem to fear his military expertise. From PolitiFact, in 2018, as negotiations to end the Afghanistan war were taking shape, the Trump administration urged Pakistan to release Baradar. Baradar would become the head of the Taliban's political office in Doha, Qatar, which is the location where the peace negotiations were taking place. The United States special envoy to the talks was a man named Zalmay Khalilzad, and he confirmed the U.S. role in releasing Baradar in remarks at the U.S. Institute of Peace in 2019 he said the release was at his request and that the pakistani government accommodated that now baradar is far more visible than the taliban supreme leader who is thought to be hiding in pakistan somewhere and rarely makes public statements never mind appearances the release of Baradar gave the taliban a face and a recognizable public figure they now had an entity baradar signed the doha agreement with the U.S. in February 2020. That's the peace deal. And what the Trump administration hailed as a breakthrough towards peace. Trump had proclaimed that, quote, we think we'll be successful in the end. And Secretary of State at the time, Mike Pompeo, echoed Trump saying that they were seizing the best opportunity for peace in a generation. So to be clear, the Trump administration released a high-profile Taliban leader from prison so that they could negotiate with him. As of this recording, Baradar just two days ago entered Kabul as the highest representative of leadership in that country for the Taliban. A man who was behind bars just a few years ago helped to coordinate the downfall of 20 years of American effort in Afghanistan, and Donald Trump is the one who released him. And so that deal did not come without criticism. U.S. General H.R. McMaster, who was formerly the NSA advisor under Trump, said our Secretary of State signed a surrender agreement with the Taliban. Quote, This collapse goes back to the capitulation agreement of 2020. The Taliban didn't defeat us. We defeated ourselves, McMaster said in regard to the events of this month. McMaster's successor was John Bolton, who offered similar comments. Lisa Curtis, who is an Afghanistan expert who served during the Trump administration as the National Security Council Senior Director for South and Central Asia said, The Doha agreement was a very weak agreement. She called it, wishful thinking and said that we should have gained more concessions from the Taliban. One official said the agreement was heavily weighted toward the Taliban and contributed to undermining Afghan president Ashraf Ghani. And he's the one who fled the country last week and is now in the UAE. Ghani was also forced to facilitate the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners without a commensurate secession from the Taliban. However, Ghani and the Afghan government was not present at these peace talks. So the U.S. basically said to the Taliban that the Afghan government was going to release 5,000 soldiers for basically nothing in return. Remember in 2014, when we were trying to get Bo Bergdahl back and Obama released five Taliban? This is 5,000 Taliban. 5,000. On top of that, in order to put this whole thing together, Trump released the highest profile Taliban leader and then entered into peace negotiations with him. So, hey... We're going to release your leader from prison, or one of them, the highest profile, certainly. And also, here's 5,000 for you guys. There was also no enforcement mechanism built into this deal. We took the Taliban at faith. And so, when they continued their attacks against the Afghan forces and working to undermine the U.S. mission, we did nothing because technically, so long as coalition forces in the U.S. were not being fired upon, the Taliban wasn't in violation, even though they were actively trying to take territory from the Afghan government, who we have been supporting and training for 20 years. And why would we allow the Taliban to engage the Afghan forces? Because, like we said, the Afghan government was not represented when creating the peace deal. This deal was a U.S.-Taliban deal only, and in fact, when asked to release the Taliban prisoners, President Ghani of Afghanistan said no, and the U.S. said, well, you need to anyway, and he was eventually pressured to release all 5,000. Another note here, just for context, at the time the peace deal was signed in 2020, Taliban forces were estimated to be at about 40 to 60,000. So releasing 5,000 fighters is equivalent to growing their fighting force by 10%, which is massive. We gave them 10% of their fighting force back in this deal. In his first comment after the capture of Kabul by the Taliban, Baradar, the man Trump released in 2018, acknowledged his surprise saying that, quote, it was never expected that we will have victory in Afghanistan. Now there are major missteps in the interim period between the signing of this agreement and the full withdrawal. And there are also points that the US basically flat out ignored the situation on the ground. The following events are from a factcheck.org timeline paired with some of my own notes. So remember the deal was signed in February of 2020. In May of 2020, The DOD inspector general's office said that the U.S. cut troop levels in Afghanistan by more than 4,000, even though the Taliban escalated violence further after signing the agreement. And this was after we had already reduced to 8,000. In August of 2020, the Defense Department inspector general's office said the Taliban did not appear to uphold its commitment to distance itself from terrorist organizations in Afghanistan. U.N. and U.S. officials reported the Taliban continued to support al-Qaeda and conducted joint attacks with al-Qaeda members against Afghan national defense and security forces. So they're not attacking Americans. They're not attacking coalition forces. They are attacking the Afghan government forces. And also, they're doing so in conjunction with al-Qaeda. And remember, al-Qaeda is the organization responsible for 9-11. Despite continued attacks by the Taliban, and no sign that they had cut ties with al-Qaeda, on January 15th, Just five days before Joe Biden took office, the Secretary of Defense put out a statement that today the U.S. force levels in Afghanistan have reached 2,500. This drawdown brings U.S. forces in the country to their lowest since 2001. This is something that gets glossed over, um, I've noticed in media coverage, and it's really important. Not only were the Taliban not exactly being the greatest about the deal that they signed with us, but while they were not being great, Donald Trump reduced our forces there from 15,000 down to 2,500 in under a year. 2,500 troops is next to nothing. At our maximum in Afghanistan, we had 140,000 troops on the ground. We now have 2,500 troops on the ground from January of 2021 until now. For a little more perspective, we have 5,800 U.S. troops on the ground at the Kabul airport right now, and that is over double the amount of troops that we had in the entire country for the last six months and that drawdown that minimizing of forces that was all done under donald trump donald trump left afghanistan with 2500 troops when he left office and i personally feel in true donald trump fashion that it is not a mistake that five days before he left office he drew down those additional troops and left joe biden with this skeleton crew in that country I will admit that is my own speculation. It just makes sense given what we know of Donald Trump and how he behaves. On April 14th of this year, saying it is time to end the forever war, Biden announced that all troops would be removed from Afghanistan by September 11th, which is four months beyond the deadline set by the Trump administration, which was May 1st, 2021. The next day, in response to Biden's decision to fully withdraw later in September, The taliban released a statement that said failure to complete the withdrawal by may 1st opens the way for the taliban to take every necessary countermeasure hence the american side will be held responsible for all future consequences so even though the taliban have been fighting afghan forces they haven't severed ties ties with al-qaeda they really haven't held up their end of the deal really in any kind of good faith the second the u.s changes anything the taliban is ready to call us out and say oh you guys are in violation Why didn't we say the Taliban were in violation? Why didn't that happen under Trump? Why didn't that happen under Biden? That's something we need to look at. In a release statement on April 18th, three days after the Taliban statement, Trump criticized Biden for going to September 11th, saying that we can and should get out earlier. He said, getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. I plan to withdraw on May 1st, and we should keep as close to that schedule as possible. Attacks by the Taliban in that quarter increased by 37 percent after the u.s pushed back our withdrawal date and after trump made that statement in june taliban spokesman told foreign policy that after foreign forces left afghanistan the group's goal is to create an islamic government and that they will be compelled to continue our war to achieve that goal not even trying to hide it taliban's like once they're gone we're going in there it is At a rally in Ohio, Donald Trump's first since he left office, he boasted that Biden can't stop the process he started to remove troops from Afghanistan and acknowledges the Afghan government won't last once troops leave. He said, quote, "Um, I'm going to be quoting here, but because it's Donald Trump, it's really all over the place. So I'm not messing up. I'm reading it as it is. So, quote, I started the process, Trump said. All the troops are coming back home. The Biden administration couldn't stop the process. 21 years is enough. Don't we think? 21 years. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process when other things... It's a shame. 21 years. By a government that wouldn't last. The only way they last is if we're there. What are we going to say? We'll stay for another 21 years and we'll be back for another 50. The whole thing is ridiculous. We're bringing troops back home from Afghanistan. My point with this is this acknowledgement by Trump that the Biden administration couldn't stop it actually supports biden's own position that he didn't have much choice about whether or not he could honor the deal in the first place trump signed the deal trump then withdrew the troops down to 2500 before he ever left office basically leaving for again all intents and purposes next to nothing in afghanistan for the last six months and he's now saying that well we didn't really leave the biden administration a choice because we left them with nothing and, like I said, that kind of backs up Biden's point. That's what he's been saying all along. On August 6th, just a few weeks ago, the Taliban took control of its first province, the capital of Nimroz province in Afghanistan, despite the agreement it signed with the U.S., probably because nowhere in the agreement did it say that the Taliban, you know, could not take Afghan government locations. On August 15th, Taliban fighters entered the Afghanistan capital of Kabul. I'll explain in a little bit how this happened so quickly and easily. The same day, Afghan President Ghani fled the country and the U.S. also evacuated our diplomats from our embassy by helicopter. On August 20th, anti-Taliban forces drove the Taliban from three northern districts. Reports are that they killed 20 Taliban members and captured another 30. Locals had surrendered peacefully to the Taliban last week under the condition that Taliban forces do not enter their homes and villages. So when the Taliban forces began searching their homes, residents rose up fighters included former military, special forces, as well as armed citizens. Another group in the north, the National Resistance Front, is backing the government's vice president, Amrullah Saleh, who went north when the government fell and has pledged resistance ever since, and he considers himself to be the real president of the country since Ghani fled. On August 21st, Taliban leader Abdul Ghani Baradar enters Kabul. This is the one that Trump released. He is accompanied by former president, Hamid Karzai, who is president from 2001 to 2014, and Abdullah Abdullah, a political rival to President Ghani, who once again fled to the UAE. No one yet knows how the Taliban will rule. They don't seem to have strong control over many areas of the nation. Laws are inconsistent, communication slow, and some reports say that the Taliban have called leaders from across the country to come to Kabul to help establish an inclusive transitional government. We'll see. So there's a lot at play here. There's a lot of complexity and i think that absolutely needs to be emphasized for anyone who thinks that any of these decisions were easy ones or that any of these events could have been well foreseen or that there's anything black and white about any aspect of this situation is either clueless about the reality of the situation or they're simply trying to score political loyalty points we have a trump deal with the taliban that was generally weak and heavily favored the taliban and it also released one of their highest profile leaders we have a drawdown of troops beginning in 2020 with additional drawdowns as to suspect times. We have new administration in the U.S., the Biden administration, that needed to decide what to do with the standing deal with the Taliban, and then we had a vulnerable Afghan government that was excluded from the U.S. Taliban talks and who have been forced to release 5,000 of the very people that they are fighting. However, the Afghan government is not innocent in how events have been playing out, and in my opinion, they may actually hold the most blame for what has happened this month in Afghanistan it seems to start and end with former president Ashraf Ghani. Ghani is trained as an anthropologist. He has a degree from Columbia University. He taught at Johns Hopkins. He worked for the World Bank and the UN, and he spent a lot of time in the US. He returned to Afghanistan in 2002 to be the chief advisor to President Hamid Karzai. Ghani sounds a little bit like an egomaniac. He flaunts his intellect constantly, He thought he could be the one to save the entire country on his own, and as time went on in his presidency and results were not manifesting, he became more withdrawn. He routinely ignored warnings about the state of the Afghan army. From the New York Times, in interview after interview, soldiers and police officers described moments of despair and feelings of abandonment. Reports were that troops had not received food or ammunition and felt their government had betrayed them. They saw no reason to die in a war for a government that was unwilling to support them. One pilot said that the government cared more about the planes than the people flying them. So clearly, the army and members of the security forces don't feel terribly supported by their president or their government. Ghani is also said to have micromanaged the military and civil command structure, and that he replaced competent people with loyal people. Critics accused him of alienating Afghanistan's other ethnic groups, and at best he turned his back on reports that there was corruption in the upper echelons of the government, which means that he was basically perpetuating the same type of behavior that he said he was going to fix. To highlight some of his, uh, let's call it incompetence, he left in office a defense minister who was so crippled by injuries from a suicide bomb that the defense minister could hardly function. That minister was eventually replaced just this past June. Quote, People were afraid of his temper, afraid of being ridiculed, so people were afraid to give honest feedback. Good people left, and those who clung to power were either very loyal or very corrupt. President Ghani actually met with President Biden in June, and Biden told Ghani that he needed to root out corruption within the government and his army, but Ghani did not do that. Biden also told Ghani that the Afghan forces were stretched too thin and that Ghani should not try to fight everywhere. He repeated American advice that Mr. Ghani should consolidate Afghan forces around key locations, but Ghani never took that advice. Further, Ghani had also requested of the U.S. that we not make a mass withdrawal, or we don't try to pull out other Afghan citizens, or we don't, like, abandon our embassy, because that could send the message that the government collapse would be inevitable, and Ghani was sure that his soldiers would fight. And this makes strategic sense. If I'm running a country, and I've been supported by another country, that their sudden exodus would make me feel like, oh, you know, what's going on? Do they not have faith in my government anymore? And it would send a signal to adversaries that, hey, they're weak now. So it makes sense that Ghani would ask this of Biden. However, despite all of the warnings that he was given from Biden and other advisors and refusing to acknowledge what was clear to so many other people, Ghani effectively did nothing. He just didn't do anything. He didn't take the advice, he didn't secure you know, his forces, he didn't, you know, support his forces, he didn't put out media messages saying that, like, hey, have faith, we're coming, nothing. On the day that the first province in Afghanistan fell to the Taliban on August 6th, the Taliban also took responsibility for the assassination of a senior government official in Kabul, who was the head of the government's media and information center. And just days earlier, they'd attacked the home of a government defense minister, which left eight dead. It also seemed that the government made no media effort to reassure the people of the country that help was on the way or that the army had the support of the government. In other words, as the country fell, the government, they didn't do anything. They just pretended it wasn't happening. And without support or payment or food or ammunition, the Afghan forces stopped fighting because they didn't have food or ammunition or anything like that. So why are they going to fight? They're not going to risk their lives when they're not getting anything in return from the government they're supposed to be protecting. And finally, Ghani fled the country as the Taliban approached. And as he fled, there were people within his government that were trying to broker a transition deal with the Taliban. And those talks came to a halt once it was discovered that Ghani left the country. And that's when the Taliban moved in with force because he fled. There's a lot wrong with President Ghani. I'm going to come back to the Afghanistan government and President Ghani in just a couple of minutes. And we're going to tie it in all together with. The other events that we've spoken about. But before we wrap up the whole deal, I just want to take a look at how the Taliban were able to move in so quickly. As of April 13th, 2021, the Taliban only held 77 of the country's 400 districts. By June 16th, two months later, they held 104. And by August 3rd, the number had climbed to 223. On August 6th, they captured the first of 34 provincial capitals. And here's what they would do. They would call. They would literally call. They would call provincial leaders and they would offer peace and amnesty in exchange for surrender. And given the bleak situation described before, in regard to the treatment of soldiers and their lack of supplies, many of the provinces surrendered without a shot being fired. Uh, You know, Talbot would be like, hey, uh, we kind of want to be where you guys are uh, and we want your weapons and stuff. And uh, we know that you're not doing so good. But if you just let us come in. Give us your weapons and stuff. You guys can just go home. No hard feelings, and uh, we'll just take over if you don't mind. And these provincial leaders were like, okay, come on in. Take the weapons. We're going home. And they went home. Off they go. With each new area that the Taliban were able to capture, they were getting better equipment, they could bring in new fighters, and most essentially they could take control of the roads and the highways in the area, which were crucial supply lines. They essentially laid siege... To the entire country except the siege had already been conducted by the afghan government the taliban simply reaped the benefits the afghan government basically didn't provide its soldiers food didn't give them ammunition didn't give them what they need you know made sure that they were unsupported and the taliban came in and just took advantage of you know that negligence with again barely a shot being fired in just 11 days they had taken 33 of the 34 provincial capitals and moved on to kabul it was at this point the president ghani fled the importance of him fleeing cannot be understated. Ghani potentially fled with most of his aides and up to 200 members of the government. It was a complete abdication and betrayal of their people. Quote, he will be known as the Benedict Arnold of Afghanistan. People will be spitting on his grave for another 100 years, says Saad Mosheni, who owns one of Afghanistan's most popular TV stations, Tolo TV. Quote, he's a coward and him leaving this vacuum is the reason why we have what we have today. The scenes at the airport and the people getting killed are his doing, Mr. Mosendi said. Until Ghani left, there were efforts of the current and former members of the government to broker that peaceful transition of power. And even days might have given U.S. and NATO forces a chance to get in there. And, you know, what remained of the Afghan army, they could have fortified the city and the airport. But Ghani fled before the Taliban even got into the city. So what is the recipe for this happening? we've been through all the facts. What was the recipe? Many people have been critical of the Biden administration, but I hope that I've demonstrated well enough here so far that this issue is far more complex than just you know the events of the past week. To recap, here's what the recipe was that led to this outcome. Number one, the US went to Afghanistan to dismantle Al-Qaeda and to kill Osama bin Laden, and that mission was complete in 2011, meaning that for 10 years, the U.S. mission has been at best murky. Our focus then shifted to nation-building and creating a democracy in Afghanistan. During this 10-year period, the Taliban were able to regroup to about the size of 50,000 fighters, which was still a number that paled in comparison to the Afghanistan force, which was about 300,000 and equipped with U.S. and NATO equipment. In 2020, seemingly out of nowhere, with the Taliban having no leverage whatsoever, Trump signed a deal with them and released the Taliban's most public leader, as well as 5,000 Taliban soldiers from prison. Trump then drew down soldiers drastically despite warnings and despite violations of the pact by the Taliban, and then Trump reduced the force from 15,000 at the time of signing to less than 2,500 just five days before transitioning the presidency to Joe Biden. So, with no real US presence on the ground from January to August, the Taliban were able to make slow and steady progress in retaking some of the outskirts territories. And then, taking advantage of the incompetent Afghan government and a vastly under resourced Afghan army, the Taliban were able to capture all the provincial capitals in 11 days with very little violence. Then, the president of Afghanistan fled the country, ending government negotiations with the Taliban, and basically sealing the nation's fate of returning to Taliban control. And the surprise exit of President Ghani left thousands of Americans and Afghani citizens and allies who had helped in the war effort left them stranded without any viable exit out of the country. So in a very tiny nutshell, that's how it happened. And I think we can all agree it probably could have been avoided. So how could this have been avoided? First, we could have left Afghanistan much earlier. We could have left their government on their own. We could have left in an orderly fashion, and we could have pledged forces should Afghan government come under attack, but we could have left earlier. We could have left in 2011, 2012, 2013, anytime before 2020 and after bin Laden's death. I think you could really argue that we could have left years and years and years ago and in a much more orderly way. Next, I think it would be absolutely fair to be extremely critical of the Trump deal. Trump, number one, didn't need to withdraw so many forces. He didn't need to reduce the forces from 8,000 to 4,000, even if he was being compliant with the deal. He went from 15,000 to eight. He could have left it at eight and left it to Joe Biden's administration go- to go from eight to 0,000. But he left a skeleton crew before he even left office. When the Taliban were clearly and actively on the offensive, on the ground, he could not have released Baradar. Just don't release Baradar. Negotiate with someone else. Negotiate with the Taliban leaders that are already not in prison. Use Baradar as leverage, maybe. But don't release Baradar. And also, maybe don't broker the release of 5,000 Taliban fighters, or what equates to, at the time, 10% of their total fighting force, without any real concession back. And I honestly believe that the drawdown of troops to 2,500 just five days before Biden took office was a spite- Drawdown. I think Trump knew what he was doing. I think he knew that if he brought the number low enough, Biden would feel like he would have to put more in Afghanistan in order to, you know, maintain the mission. But if Biden put more troops in Afghanistan, the Taliban would see that as a violation of the deal. And then the deal would be null and void. So it really, I think, handcuffed Biden. And I think Trump probably did that intentionally because he could have just left it at 8,000 or 4,000 or whatever was there at the time. It was a weird deal. It was a shady deal. It didn't make a lot of sense. We're the United States of America. We have much more leverage on our side. I don't understand why we felt we had to make a deal with the Taliban at all. Doesn't make any sense to me. Next, there were clearly years of abuse by the Afghan government. There was corruption. The army wasn't being taken care of. And honestly, I think the US as a nation, we should have been harsher. If we're paying them money. To fund their government, and if we're giving them equipment for their army, we should be demanding changes or withholding the funds. And at that point, if the Afghan government isn't willing to fight corruption, or they're not willing to fund their army, or they're not willing to get resources where they need to go, then we need to say, We're withholding our funds. You have X amount of time to turn this around. If you don't turn it around, we're taking off. It's on you guys. We have spent 20 years here. We've set you up with a government. You have a democratic system. You have a force of 300,000. And if you don't want to work on this, We're going to withhold our money, and we're going to leave this country, and whatever happens as a result is on you. And that would have saved us what we're feeling right now. We would have felt much better about that because we could have very clearly blamed the Afghan government after all this time, all this training, all this money, all the resources that have been spent. But that didn't happen, and even though I feel like the Afghan government bears a lot of blame in what's going on, especially at the airport in Kabul, we did not do enough to make sure that, you know, our funds that were being given to them were being spent in the way that they should. And you know, that we're rooting out corruption next Biden could have rescinded the deal or called the Taliban out. I read an article that pointed out that Trump withdrew from the Iran deal, even though the Iran deal was backed by all of our allies and Iran was complying with that deal. And Trump still backed out even though they were complying. So Biden is saying that, well, the Taliban were complying. I didn't want to back out, you know, You can, sure, fine, you you can say that, but the fact of the matter is, if he wanted to change the situation on the ground, he could have. He could have sent more troops in, because what is the Taliban going to do? There's a force of 300,000 Afghan soldiers and then X amount of U.S. soldiers, and that's been enough to keep them at bay for years. The Taliban really wouldn't have been able to do much at that point. We clearly have the power there. The Taliban said that Biden was in violation by not leaving on May 1st, despite the Taliban breaking multiple aspects of the agreement biden could have done the same but biden did reiterate that americans are not being attacked by the taliban and that is what the deal said to do so it's a relatively weak defense given the taliban's forward movement but it's not technically incorrect but i think there's a big argument to be made that biden could have said we're not pulling out or hey we're going to pull out september 11th or september 30th and you know establish a quick and easy evacuation out I don't know what the Taliban would have done. Maybe they murder a lot more people in those outskirts cities and in the other capital cities. We don't know what that looks like. We don't have the intelligence on that. So maybe there was a heavy price to be paid if the Biden administration, you know, sent more troops in and tried to fortify Kabul. We don't know. But at the surface, it it looks like there was time to maybe do something more. And maybe Biden could have pulled out of the deal or restructured the deal, whatever it may be. But the final thing, and what I think is the biggest thing, is that if Ghani had not fled, we may not be seeing any of this chaos. If you're President Ghani, you have a force of about 300,000 Afghan soldiers. Now, some of them may be corrupt. Some of them may not be working properly. Maybe they're not the best trained. But either way, there's a force there. If he had fed his soldiers, if he had supplied his soldiers, if he hadn't been negligent about his fighting force, they would have been more capable. Number one. Number two, even though that wasn't the case, there was clearly still a fighting force there present. There were some U.S. forces still left. And if he had not left the city, he could have fortified the city and the airport. Hey, the Taliban have captured 33 or 34. Bring everybody back here. Get back here as you know quickly as you can. Anyone that's in the city, we're going to fortify the city against the Taliban force. We're going to hold it we're going to give the U.S. and NATO forces time to come into the city, and we are going to hold the entire city. And at that point, you have grounds for negotiation. You can negotiate that peace deal. While that's going on, we're getting U.S. citizens out, we're getting Afghan citizens out, coalition forces out, because we control the whole city, so anyone who's in the city can get out, and then maybe we can open up a passageway through the city, and maybe... After all said and done, if he had just held the city a couple of more days, there could have been a negotiation with the Taliban to that inclusion, uh, inclusional, transitional government, and maybe things would have been better. But he left before they got to the city. He took off in a plane with other members of the government, and he betrayed them. He left them there stranded. No one is saying that he had to die there. No one is saying that he had to give up his life there. All I'm saying is that he should have tried to hold the city. And when it became inevitable that the city would fall, despite that, okay, then get him out, get him somewhere else. And immediately he should have gone on TV or sent out something on social media that said, I'm out of the city. I still represent this country. I am open to negotiating with the Taliban, but I will not do so in the city under these conditions. And maybe they could have met in Qatar somewhere else, but he didn't even do that. He just went MIA for like three days. And this is where I want to touch on what the Pentagon press conference was all about when general milley said that they had no indication that the government would fall in weeks what they're really saying there is that they had no reason to believe that president ghani would up and out abandon his own people without so much as forming a defense of the city if the u.s intelligence is that hey they could fall in weeks They probably think, okay, well, President Ghani will try to establish a defense or President Ghani will reach out for help or there will be a plan in place so we know what's going on and we can move, you know, equipment and people as necessary in coordination with the government. But what happened was Ghani left. The government left. They just up and left and did nothing. And the U.S. is sitting there saying, what is going on? where are you oh sorry our people are on the ground there and we need to get people out and where's the government oh they're somewhere else we don't know where if ghani could have held the city for a day or two we could have gotten back up there we could have gotten people out and they would have had leverage to negotiate a deal with the taliban if they needed to negotiate a deal at all and this is why i think so much of it falls on the government the government has an army of three hundred thousand that basically turned out to be useless because of government incompetence and an unwillingness to fund that. Well, not fund, but an unwillingness to resource those soldiers, give them ammunition, give them food, give them pay, have clear and open lines of communication and establish a clear strategy. That's not on the U.S. to do. It's not our job to tell them how to run their army. We've been there for 20 years. It's about time they learn to walk, right? But they didn't do any of it. They just ignored their army completely and they let them Basically, starve. And so the Taliban walked in and the soldier said, All right, I'm going home. See you later. That's all in the Afghan government. All of it. You can blame bad planning once Ghani left. You can blame the chaos and say that maybe the US should have done X, Y, or Z differently. But the fact of the matter is, is that if Ghani does not flee the city, we are not here today. And if Ghani does not flee the city, it's probably likely that all of our intelligence up to this point was accurate and well thought out. And we could have you know, established or gone off of the contingency plans that the Pentagon and the White House all said that we had. They didn't expect that a loose cannon president was going to up and leave everybody without saying anything and then go MIA for a few days and let the Taliban walk into the city unchecked even as negotiations are going on to make a more peaceful transition. It's a variable that was not expected and it was completely unaccounted for. And I don't know how you can account for it, okay? And further, beyond avoiding the war completely, no matter which way you spin it, the circumstances that we're seeing now, they are what they are. You know, the, things transpired the way they did, Trump signed the deal, here we are. What is the best we could have done? And you know, I said earlier, there are currently more U.S. troops defending the airport in Kabul right now than we've had in the entire country of Afghanistan since January. And, you know, as Biden laid out, it's a catch-22. We can send more troops, but what does that achieve? It endangers lives. It risks escalation. Now we're talking about U.S. soldiers potentially dying, coalition forces potentially dying because it might send a message to the Taliban that we're not leaving, and then it escalates in the city. And and so then, we, and, and then we're fighting. We're not getting people out at that point. Now we're fighting. And, and so, you know, what do we do there? The Taliban are already in this city. They've already established some form of control. So unless we're outright declaring we're on the Taliban now, and, you know, what do we do? Do we really want to waste more American lives, especially when the Afghan army isn't willing to fight? The Afghan government wasn't willing to do what was necessary to defend the country. Why should we spend American lives? Why should we ask American soldiers to go to Afghanistan and die for a country and a government that doesn't even believe in itself? It doesn't make sense. And further, how do we even define victory there anymore? What is victory in Afghanistan? I asked this post, I asked this in a question, in a post that I put out on Facebook. And the answers from American people were all over the place. Everything from, oh, we should never have gone in at all. We should have minded our own business. You know, this is like a imperialist occupation, to, hey, we should have made Afghanistan a US territory and just taken over, or hey, just drop a nuclear bomb. But what do what do any of those things even achieve? Right? Make Afghanistan US territory. Okay, now we need to spend millions and millions of dollars every year to protect a country, you know, a world away that You know, doesn't have a US population that has a differing like religious background, different culture completely, and it's extremely difficult to defend because it is remote. So that doesn't make much sense. We're not going to drop a nuke because we shouldn't be dropping nukes, and that's just begging China and Russia to get involved at that point. And do we never go in at all? I don't know. We talked about that earlier. But it doesn't achieve anything. And it doesn't answer the question, what is victory in Afghanistan? And I truly believe there is no victory in Afghanistan. There is no definition of it. We can say it would have been nice if the Afghan government could have maintained their democracy and fended off the Taliban. That would have been nice. But that's not a U.S. victory. That's an Afghanistan victory. Did we aid them to get there? Sure. But we didn't go there for that. We didn't go there to stand up an Afghanistan government. So if, if something is achieved that we never meant to do, then it's not a victory. We assisted, and we're good at assisting. Usually, I guess, I guess this would be bad at assisting, technically speaking, although their incompetence, I think, is what ended them here. But if there's no goal, there's no end point. And if there's no end point, you can't have victory. You need to know what you're fighting for. You need to know what that outcome looks like. And then you need to achieve that outcome for there to be a victory. And that's just not here. So this isn't a loss. I mean, really forget win and loss. Um, there are to be you know to be cliche here there are no winners in war but that said we completed our mission al-qaeda has never regained their strength and osama bin laden is dead the mastermind of 9-11 is dead and justice was brought to him in the name of all those americans who died on 9-11 but there's more than that and i don't think we've spoken about this much i don't think the media has talked about this much Prior to the U.S. military operation in Afghanistan, Afghanistan was a safe haven for multiple terror groups, and it was under Taliban leadership. And under that leadership, women were treated cruelly. They were forced to cover up. They were forced to be escorted anywhere out of the house. They couldn't work. And they were flogged or executed for these, you know, for violating those rules. But for 20 years, since 2001, America has provided a different world for Afghani citizens. and. I know that there are probably many differing viewpoints among the Afghani people about what they think of the United States. But in at least portions of that country, for 20 years, women worked. They were able to live freely. They were able to go out unescorted. There were democratic elections. And 20 years is, in many ways, a full generation. That means that there are 20 year old Afghans who have never lived under an oppressive government they never lived under the taliban they've spent the first 20 years of their lives living in something that resembles a democratic free society and so we can hope that with them a seed has been planted so that if an oppressive regime like the taliban does take power and they do return to you know the ways of old there's a seed planted amongst the young people there and they They feel the oppression, they feel the restriction, they know that they're being choked, and maybe they'll rise up, maybe that seed's been planted. And so do the U.S. soldiers who have fought there, because I know a lot of the people in the military that I'm friends with have a lot of different thoughts about this. That seed, that's the contribution that you have made. It may not be a physical contribution, it may not be a tangible contribution, but the effect may be far greater than you could ever imagine. We couldn't teach the Afghan people how to fight with our weaponry or in our style or under their existing government. But that doesn't mean that we have not shown them that there is hope worth fighting for and that there is freedom worth fighting for. The sudden loss of those freedoms that they've enjoyed may in fact be the motivating factor they need to build their own free nation. And the Taliban already fear this. This is why Baradar has stated that the Taliban are different this time. This is why the Taliban were willing to let all those citizens in the other provinces they captured live. On some level, the Taliban understand that they cannot govern Afghanistan if they return to a regime of cruelty, sexism, and religious extremism because they understand that the people will turn immediately. And we saw the news you know, the last couple of days from the northern provinces in Afghanistan, where the vice president is, is staying and there are fighting forces there, they retook those three northern districts, they're fighting. What are they fighting for? Well, they're probably fighting with this seed of hope, knowing that the Taliban government may represent an oppressive regime. And at the very least, they're fighting for more negotiating power. They're fighting for territory, they're fighting for leverage, so that even if Taliban remain somehow in the government or in power or even if it's an inclusive government that those people up in the north those people fighting for the country of Afghanistan and not the caliphate of the Taliban those Afghans who are fighting for their country are fighting for more freedom more leverage and that is the U.S. contribution it's not about territory it's not about defeating a particular enemy in this case we went to war against a very, very, very specific enemy in Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. We completed that mission 10 years ago, and what we've done over the last 10 years for the soldiers who have been there in the last 10 years, what has been done is the seed of hope has been planted, the vision of democracy and freedom has been put forth, and for 20 years, Afghan citizens in some places of that country get to live that experience, and there are people in that country 20 years old who have never, ever lived under oppression before, and those are the ones who will be the most motivated to rise up against it. The situation in Afghanistan is complex. It is long. 20 years. Four presidencies. American lives lost. Being there for over a decade with no clear goal. Being there to nation-build when we weren't supposed to be there nation-building. And the way this exit has gone, it has been it, it's sad. It's disappointing. But there's also a lot of things that, you know, as we've talked about, could not have been foreseen. I think the one thing that was really within our control was that deal that Trump made. I'm not assigning all the blame to Donald Trump or his administration because there were missteps before Trump. There were missteps after Trump. But that deal put this situation in motion. If that deal is not struck with the Taliban, we are not here today. We're we're just not, because they're Their chief leader would still be in prison somewhere. 5,000 of their fighters would still be in jail. They'd be at a greatly reduced capacity. And even if we were going to pull out of Afghanistan, we would do so without brokering a deal with the Taliban. We would have given the Afghanistan government what they needed. We would have stayed, maybe we would have left a small force to help them train, or we would have had the embassy open and, and we could have, you know, still played a supporting role from a distance without making any deal with the Taliban. I don't think any American was like, oh man, the only way out of Afghanistan is if we make a deal with the Taliban who control you know a very limited portion of the territory in Afghanistan and exactly zero of the provincial capitals. The Taliban had no leverage. We didn't need to make a deal with the Taliban. We made a deal with the Taliban. There's nothing we can do about it now because it happened, but that was in our control. That is something that we chose to do As a country, that is something the Trump administration chose to do. They chose to take part in it. They chose to put the wheel in motion. Whether Joe Biden could have left the deal or not, I don't know that we'll ever really have a good picture. We don't know what the consequences would have been. We know that the American people are tired of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq to the point that we don't even really acknowledge they're still going on. They've become such a regular part of life and they've become relatively inconsequential that we've just forgotten about it. And so of course we want to bring our troops home. We want to stop those deployments. We want to stop spending money over there. Yes, we want to do all that, but we didn't need to deal with the Taliban to do it. And so Joe Biden, I don't know. I understand that, you know, once the deal's in place, you're talking about an entity that has since Trump left office, taken territory, taken cities, Establish more power, they're a, they're a stronger they're a stronger force than when Trump made that pact. So for the Biden administration, I understand the tough call. I do think we are the United States. I do think as far as getting our people out of there, more could have been done. I know that we wanted to give the impression uh, as a favor to President Ghani, that we were not just you know real real quick, leaving and they were all alone. I know that we wanted to do that. I know that was with the best intent. But we also knew we had people on the ground there. We had Afghani citizens to get out. Visas needed to be issued. That could have been started before. And we could have had a better evacuation plan in place. We could have sent more troops over, even if it was just to Kabul or to uh, Bagram Air Force Base or over there, where we had more control. It's a larger base. We could have operated from there rather than the capital city. I think there's more that could have been done there, too. But none of this happens if the Trump deal is, in, is, is put in place. None of it. And then to further complicate things, you have the incompetence of the Afghan government, which is becoming clear to, I think, regular American citizens through the news reporting now. And I think we're getting a handle on, on what that looked like. And I think that's where I place personally a lot of the blame for the situation. At the end of the day, hopefully, we get everybody out of Afghanistan that we need to get out. President Biden said that if you're an American, we will get you out of Afghanistan. We'll do everything we need to do to get you out of Afghanistan. I just saw news that in the last 24 hours, we've actually taken out 12,000 people, which is the most we've taken out in any single day thus far. We are getting people out of there. We're getting them to safety, and hopefully, we can get everyone out that needs to get out without any bloodshed, without any shots being fired, without any American casualties, and we can be done with it. And at that point, if that's the outcome, despite the Trump deal, despite the chaos that's been going on the last couple of weeks, if that is the outcome... Maybe it was scary for a little bit, but it will be okay. It'll be okay. we have gotten the Afghanis out that need to get out. We have gotten the Americans out that need to get out, the coalition forces. And if everyone is okay, even though it was crap, even though it was sad and disappointing, even though it was scary, even though there was a lot of tension, if everyone gets out, I think we will owe the Biden administration some credit for being able to pull it together and getting it done. That doesn't excuse them for poor planning if they had the opportunity to plan better. I'm sure we'll see a commission on this. But if they are able to pull it together and get it done in a way that, you know, has very little cost other than having those troops over there for a few weeks, I think we should be grateful that they were able to do that, give credit they were able to do that, and then leave Afghanistan behind us. Do the commissions, investigate why this happened, investigate the merits of the Trump deal, investigate, you know, how to avoid these mistakes going forward and maybe not engaging in in two decade long wars. Yeah, sure. Let's do that but let's leave this behind us. Let's, let's enter peace. Let's enter a peaceful time in America where we're not at war for the first time since nine 11. And, and let's see what we can do with that. Let's see what we can do by setting the example of peace in the world and leading with diplomatic solutions. This has been a long episode, but it's very complex. And I hope if I've achieved anything with this episode, I hope you've learned some extra information I hope you've learned some additional details, whether it be about the Trump deal or about the Afghan government, how things work there, or whether just the complexity and the dynamic of all the moving parts. I hope that you've been able to take something away from this. The point of this episode is not to assign blame. The point of this episode was to take a, what I hope is a subjective look at the entire situation from start to finish, from 9-11 until current day, and place the responsibility where it needs to be placed. Trump bears responsibility for the deal that he signed. He signed it. Biden bears responsibility for the events and the way that they played out. And if there were opportunities for better planning, he blames, or rather he bears responsibility, as does the Pentagon, for that. George Bush bears responsibility for the way that we entered the war. Barack Obama bears responsibility for... Yes, killing Osama bin Laden, but also trying to figure out whether or not we should still be there and then, you know, going through the surge and then and then reducing forces. Each president has a role that they have played. They each bear responsibility for some aspect of this crisis. And just because right now it's culminating after twenty years in a few weeks of chaos, the fact of the matter is is that this thing has been going on for something like two hundred and forty eight months. And so two or three weeks in August of twenty twenty one, Should not matter so much as long as the Americans can get out, the Afghanis can get out, and hopefully, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed because it's wishful, wishful thinking, but maybe the Taliban are a different kind of ruling force. Maybe Baradar, it's a smart person who understands that they want to govern, they want control of Afghanistan, and if they want to do that, they need to lead in maybe a more democratic way, or at least in a less oppressive way. We'll see. I'm sure we'll talk about that in future episodes. Thank you so much for listening to the New Deal podcast. I hope you've been able to stick it out to this point. If you like this episode, if you like this type of content, please rate and review. Let me know how I'm doing. Drop some comments. If you are on Facebook or you see the New Deal on Twitter, Instagram, let me know what you think. Um, tell me what you think about the situation. Throw your comment out there. I like to engage with people on Facebook. Tell me what you think about the Afghanistan situation. Let me know if you place blame anywhere or if you think this could have been avoided and how. So enter the conversation. I hope you've taken something from this episode. Thank you once again so much for listening to the New Deal podcast. I will talk to you soon. New Deal out.